Well, during this period, there's a seven-week period in this year in which the assigned readings for uh, the Sunday's text all come from First and Second Timothy, and we're right in the middle of that lectionary period where we're hearing from First and Second Timothy. And as you remember from multiple introductions of the last uh, few weeks, these letters are from the Apostle Paul to a young presbyter, a young priest who has was left in charge of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large and prosperous town in the Roman Empire. It was in Asia Minor. And Paul is offering two sets of instructions to this young uh, presbyter. First of all, to Timothy, how to order his personal life. How do you order your personal life as a pastor? And secondly, how do you order the life of the Christian community under your care? How do you order your personal life as a minister of the gospel? And how do you order the life of the church that is under your care? And frequently, as in this text from 2 Timothy chapter 1, as we heard today, those two areas of concern, caring, you know, ordering your own personal life and ordering the life of the church, they overlap, and they do in this text as well. And this letter also has a deep emotional context. 2 Timothy is, in one sense, Paul's last will and testament. Paul is in the Marmotine prison in Rome. He's awaiting execution. And so he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So this letter is a poignant outpouring of affection to, uh, for Timothy, coupled with a deep concern for the future. And the most pressing concern in Paul's last days is that Timothy would boldly profess the faith and safeguard the ministry that has been entrusted to him, and that the Christian faith be passed on uncorrupted to the next generation of believers. And David, we began that process with you this morning, passing on the Christian faith as we received it from the Apostle Paul to this very moment through apostolic tradition, from the Word of God to this very moment, and we hand it to you. So let's look at this text, and I want you to take a look at it with me. It's uh, Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you have your Bible with you, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at verse 6 here. Paul begins his admonition to Timothy in this passage by earning, uh, urging him, listen, this is one, uh, 2 Timothy 1.6, to fan into flame the gift of God, to fan into flame. Just like uh, if you have a wood stove or if you have a fireplace or for that matter, if you've ever made a fire outside, you know that sometimes you have to take a bellows or whatever you got and just fan that fire into flame. Don't do what I did and take the leaf blower and try it in the uh, charcoal grill. That could be dangerous. That, that, would, be, that would be a real uh, hold my beer kind of moment. Uh, don't do that. So, uh, but you fan it into flames, stir it up, make it burn. Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So given the context of immediately what follows, this is a reference to Timothy's ordination. He's speaking about Timothy's ordination. Here's the takeaway from verse 6. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to fan into flame the gift God gave him at ordination. And I think that based on what follows, Paul is concerned, Paul is concerned that Timothy's courage and his boldness, his courage and boldness in confessing Jesus Christ, Christ before a hostile world is beginning to flag. 
he urges Timothy to stir up the fire of God's spirit in his life. You know, our relationship with Jesus has to be tended just like we would tend a fire. It has to be stirred up and it has to have more fuel added. And that's what this means for all of us. As baptized, born-again followers of Jesus, we are, you and, all, you and I are all recipients of God's supernatural gifts. As baptized, born-again followers of Jesus, we are recipients of God's supernatural gifts. God sovereignly acts to bless us with the gift of the new birth and the indwelling promise, or excuse me, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth and to empower us for holy living. But the Bible also indicates, and it has here, that, there, uh, that the believer is responsible to stir up the fire of that grace that has been given us in our lives. We are also, we have a component of our responsibility here, and that is to stir up the fire of the grace that has been given us. Thomas Oden wrote, spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts may become atrophied due to abuse or non-use. They await our cooperative energies to be reawakened as gifts of grace. Though not harshly withdrawn by God, they do require our daily cooperation with grace to become effective on a daily basis. Lacking exercise, they are prone to decay. So how do you do that? How do you fan it into flame? Well, if you are not regularly attending worship on the Lord's Day, if you're not regularly receiving the sacrament, if you are not regularly fasting and praying, if you're not regularly reading the Bible and gathering with other believers for fellowship, then you are neglecting what the church calls the means of grace and the fire of faith will turn into a smoldering ember through that neglect. So God has given us in the scriptures and in the practices of the people of God throughout the ages these means of grace. And by engaging in the means of grace, we stir up the fire. We stir up the gift that is in us. And then Paul reminds Timothy, and this is very important, he reminds Timothy that cowardice, cowardice is not a spiritual gift. Cowardice is not a spiritual gift. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul seems to be concerned that Timothy might have begun to suffer a courage deficit as, is, as it related to boldly confessing Christ in the face of adversity. You see, Paul is in prison, and he is facing execution for the Christian faith, for his Christian faith. And maybe Timothy begins to fear for his own safety as he thinks about Paul. Well, that same call to courage is especially important for you and for me, for believers today. As the once Christian West continues to secularize, the pressure continues to rise every day for Christians to surrender their convictions, the convictions that are at odds with the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And as a result, Christians in Europe and uh, Australia, New Zealand, North America increasingly receive the opprobrium, the, the shaming of the mainstream culture. Propaganda seeks to identify Orthodox Christian faith and practice with violent extremism. 
And not only is there public shaming and vilification, believers have begun to lose their livelihoods and to be fined and to be threatened with prison time for failure to surrender their Christian convictions. And so, believer, are we going to be intimidated? Are you and I going to be intimidated into quiescence by this? You know, the word here that is translated, it can be translated as God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of self-control. It can also be translated sound mind or self-discipline. That word literally means the ability to control one's self in the face of panic or passion. To control yourself in the face of panic and passion. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit that is able to keep us under self-control in the face of panic or passion. And in relation to sharing the testimony of Jesus, it means the ability to stand firm in our witness and to press forward in sharing our testimony, even in the face of fear and intimidation. Don't be intimidated. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So here's the point. Listen, believer, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't knuckle, knuckle under to this pressure. As one Christian provocateur, I'm, sometimes I'm a Christian provocateur, but there's some people that make a living doing this, evidently. But as one Christian provocateur has said, refusal to tell the truth unvarnished, ungarbled, unfettered, unashamed is either malice or cowardice. If you know a man to be utterly deceived and in a way that is lethal to his soul and you choose to say nothing because he will react violently to it, you either despise him or you love your own peace and safety more than you love him. And be encouraged that the, the love and power given to us by the Spirit prepares us to endure hardship on account of the gospel. The Holy Spirit, his love and power, what we heard that God gives us, not a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind, gives us the ability to endure hardship on account of the gospel. Paul tells Timothy, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You can't do it in the flesh, but by the power of God. So good news, God's power rests on us in our weakness when we suffer for the gospel. 1 Peter 4.14. This is a memory verse, y'all. You need to memorize this one. 1 Peter 4.14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, so Christian, don't, be, don't go around choosing other things to be insulted for. Those don't count. <laughs> but if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, Mar uh, um, Marikos. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And then we hear in uh, 2 Corinthians, you know this verse as well, another encouraging verse about that relates to this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. But he said to me, Jesus said to Paul in that vision, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, listen, 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Be encouraged. And then Paul reminds Timothy of the content, the content. So he reminds Timothy of the content of the gospel that invites that kind of suffering, which is odd because it's such a good news message. To begin with, the, the gospel tells us that God saves us and God calls us not because we have earned salvation by our works, but because of his, listen, sovereign, elective purpose. In other words, by grace, his unmerited favor. This is what it says, 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, because of his, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, that's one of the reasons that uh, you are confronted and I am confronted every week. We have the icon of the good shepherd staring at us every Sunday here at Christ Church. Jesus, the good shepherd, reminds us that we didn't go looking for God. This icon teaches this lesson. We didn't go looking for God, but Jesus, the good shepherd, came looking for us. It was his purpose and his grace that saved us. Shepherds come to find lost sheep. That's you and me on Jesus' shoulders right there. And then Paul messes, he, he messes with how we like to tell the gospel. We like to talk about how Jesus saves us from our sins. And of course, Jesus does save us from our sins. But sin is just the road to the ultimate destination of our desperate situation. And what is that? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And so Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ Jesus, listen, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus abolishes death and grants us to share in his victory. And so I often say, it's not, I don't say anything new, there's nothing innovative, don't ever worry about that. But it, I'm just repeating other people's good ideas. It's my spiritual gift. So, uh, but Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, he came to make dead people live. He didn't come to make bad people good, he, made, he came to make dead people live. David, in your life, what we are looking for God to do is to take you from death to life, a new life. All of us, be encouraged. God comes to bring us from death to life. And then finally, finally, the gospel has to be guarded as a deposit. It has to be guarded as a deposit. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, and here it is, guard the good deposit entrusted to you so we don't get to change the deposit given to us the deposit of the gospel if you place an item in a safe deposit box if you have such a thing if you place an item in your safe deposit box you expect for the bank to give you that same item back unchanged it was deposited we likewise are not permitted to alter or to make more socially palatable substitutions for the gospel and the truth laid down in God's word. This past week in Foundations, I read this quote, and I'm going to read it here. This is from St. Vincent of Lorraine. 
what is meant by the deposit. When Paul says guard the deposit, well, this is what he says. What is meant by the deposit? That which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. That which is committed to you, not that which is invented by you. That which you have received, not that which you have devised. A thing not of wit, you didn't conjure it up in your mind, but of learning, not of private assumption, but of public tradition. A thing brought to you, listen, the, the, the deposit is the thing brought to you, not brought forth of you, wherein you must not be an author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. Keep the deposit. You see, the gospel is unchanging. It's an unchanging deposit because it is about a God who does not change. And that's good news because that means God's love for you and for me is unchangeable. It's immutable. His disposition of grace and love is unchanging to you and to me. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 3, I mean, Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God. He never changes in his disposition of love and mercy to you. Now, you only have to guard something if it is threatened. We're always tempted to surrender or to modify the gospel. Persecution, people-pleasing, and our own sinful passions are always pressuring us to surrender the truth of God's word, the core content of the Christian faith. And that's why in Jude, that little book right before Revelation, says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to epagonistomai, to, to agonize for, to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. That means to, to, to battle for the truth with Christ's sacrifice. With Christ's sacrifice as our model for how we wage our warfare by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Contend for the faith. So genuinely courageous defense, genuinely courageous defense of the gospel happens in spirit-filled, love-filled, moment-by-moment encounters with real people in the real world that Jesus loved and died for. And what is not in that set is social media. Genuinely courageous defense of the gospel happens in spirit-filled, love-filled, moment-by-moment encounters with real people in the real world that Jesus loved and died for. None of us is, as someone has written, none of us is seeking to live in a conflict with people around us. And so we are always tempted to make the gospel inoffensive in order that, it might, that we might preserve the peace. But the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And so the elect of God show forth, or excuse, the elect of God show faith by trusting a message that runs contrary to the lies of our culture 
if what is called the gospel, not the messenger, but if what, the, what is called the gospel, not the messenger, never offends, it is not the true gospel. Brothers and sisters, do not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. Do not be ashamed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.